Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hey, this is Dave. Welcome to Living the Dream. I know it's been a really long time since our last episode. I've recorded a couple of versions of this intro where I've tried to explain uh, the reason for this hiatus, trying to link what's going on in my own attempt to make sense of the world uh, with the challenges of the current historic moment. But I guess I've kind of realised one of the things that's made me so unproductive in the last couple of years is my feeling to need to say everything really gets in the way of saying anything at all. So I just want to say it's good to be back. Hopefully you enjoy this episode we've got coming up. John and I have been talking a lot. We know that we owe you uh, another episode on um, whiteness slash race after white Australia. We are going to read The White Possessive by Eileen Morton Robinson and uh, get into that. We've been putting it off. Life's been getting in the way. We're going to be working on it in the next couple of weeks. One of the things I'm trying to do to kind of become a bit more productive and more creative is to look out and look at those that are writing, that are uh, intervening in this historical moment and try to riff off their ideas, dig into that. So that's what we've got today. We've got an episode talking to two anarchist comrades about an essay one of them has written that's been relatively popular that I think has kind of interesting uh, strategic uh, implications and questions. So Hopefully you'll be hearing more from us soon. Uh, you can follow me at With Sober Senses. This is Dave. You're living the dream. Hi, everybody. You are listening to Living the Dream. Uh, it's been a while, I know, and hopefully by the time you've heard this content of the podcast, you've already heard some pre-recorded stuff I've put on the front of it explaining why it's been a, been a bit of time. But I'm really excited today because I'm joined by Tommy and Charlie, who, from my understanding, are um, young active anarchists on the east coast of Australia. And we're here to discuss a piece that Tommy wrote called Anarchy and its Allies, the United Front. And should it be groupings or grouping of tendency, Tommy? <laughs> well, it was meant to be grouping, but I did a typo when I uploaded it. And That's fantastic. It's already been printed, so I can't take it back. Yeah, so I, I once in a previous life... Um, wrote a PhD thesis that became a book and I misspelt the na- the first name of one of the key people <laughs> that I wrote about. So, you know, typos are great. Tommy, do you mind um, just introducing yourself to our audience about who you are and where you're at? And then Charlie, if you could do that, please. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so my name's Tommy. Uh, I'm a member of Geelong Anarchist Communists, yeah, currently living yeah, down in Geelong. Uh, I'm an electrician, rank and file member of the ETU. Um, and yeah, I guess that's about it. I've, previous, I've been around the anarchist scene for, I think, about 12, 14 years. I'm not quite sure exactly. But yeah. Excellent. And hi, um, my name is Charlie. I am a uh, anarchist, um, part of a group called Black Flag Sydney, um, in Sydney, obviously. Um, and I am a sex worker. Um, a uh, trans woman, um, so I'm a member of Scarlet Alliance um, and a uh, left-wing queer rights group as well called Pride and Protest. Excellent. So I get the understanding that you are both kind of part of a transformation that is happening in anarchism in Australia. And in fact, Tommy, you open your article with that declaration. So the first line is anarchism in the oceanic region is entering a new stage of development. Could you explain to me what you mean by that claim? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it, well, it reflects, I guess, from the very beginning that uh, there's, there's a whole plethora of new anarchist communist groups in Oceania, if we include yeah, comrades over in Aotearoa. Um, yeah, so in the last sort of two years, we've gone from just having, well, there was Melbourne Anarchist Communist Group, which I think was founded in about 2004. So they've sort of been a mainstay of the scene. And then I was in Anarchist Affinity, which then changed its name to Collective Action, which has 
since folded in the last couple of years. But then, yeah, in 2017, I believe it was. So uh, Tamaki Makanao, I might have mispronounced that, Anarchist, which is the group in Auckland, was founded. And then since then, we've had, I think the first one was Anarchist Communist Mainjin in Brisbane. And I think they founded at the start of this year, technically. And then there was Black Flag Sydney. And there's now also Geelong Anarchist Communist. And I suppose there's also a website red and black notes that sort of played a bit of a role in that sort of transformation to a more yes specific class struggle anarchism um yeah i guess i'm not sure how in depth you want me to go with this but uh there's there's sort of a bit of a a story to this i suppose so just before covid uh there was efforts made to start organizing an anarchist communist conference and I was part of that, but then, you know, we sort of had a venue booked and a few plans. Uh, and then all of a sudden, yeah, COVID hit, that all fell apart. And then we started hosting these online reading groups. Um, and that was mostly based for people in Melbourne and Sydney. And I think it really did a good job of cohering people sort of more around platformist ideas from, yeah, Melbourne, Sydney. I think Charlie could speak more to sort of how the process developed in Sydney. There's a bit more backstory maybe involving Azen and some other sort of social movements. Um, and then there's an entirely different process in Brisbane. Uh, and also all the groups have been in discussion with groups overseas. So variously between the various, you know, between the groups in Australia, we've also been in discussion with Black Rose Rosenegger in the US, the Anarchist Federation of Uruguay, uh the union communist libertaire in france the anarchist, Com anarchist communist group in um the uk uh so there's a bit of an international dimension which i think is also sort of made possible i suppose by a new technology in a way that we can all actually you know sit down and zoom with one another and there's been sort of you know potentials opened up by by covid and also ways that sort of the development of this uh this current has been limited by it as well. Um, yeah, and if I could maybe just get a little bit more ahead of myself, I think it also sort of reflects a change, yeah, like more broadly in anarchism in Australia. Uh, maybe I won't, actually, maybe I won't say too much more about it, but. I, I think yeah, I would be uh, really interested in hearing it. I just, just if you could pause yeah. for a second, maybe, Charlie, do you have something you'd like to comment on mm. this kind of process of recomposition of anarchism in Australia? Yeah, look, personally, I'm quite, I'm I'm quite new to anarchism. Um, only, only you know, I guess learning um, about it theoretically, um, and coming into a group. Well, since Black Flag formed, um, but yeah, it um, did come from specifically in Sydney. I guess a lot of us being in different um, swampy places, you could say. Um, you know, um, we came from a number of different grassroots groups. So, you know, it was across places like, like AZEN, um, places like Pride in Protest, um, and also people, you know, coming in and out of um, uh, the New South Wales Greens as well, um, where, no, there wasn't a specific home for, um, for, for, for dedicated um, anarchists. Well, that's not quite true. Um, but... Um, I guess people saw the need for a, a particular um, action-oriented organisation. Um, and so, yeah, out of that reading group um, that was with the comrades um, in Melbourne um, that we did online, um, we went to form a reading group um, that was in person in Sydney. Um, and it started out somewhat broad, but um, I think a number of the main instigators were interested um, strongly in platformism, platformism, um, and especially uh, especifismo. Um, it was what's the name of that? What's the name of that pamphlet um, by that especifismo group? Social anarchism and organization. Yeah, social anarchism and organization was was pretty much the the blueprint that we had taken um, uh, for our ideas by Farge um, in forming Black Flag Sydney. Um, and yeah, it was it was good it was good to have it formed out of groups like AZN, um, Pride and Protest, 
um, and other places um, because we could, I guess, still maintain our activity and autonomy within those groups, um, but have a really clear direction um, being led by the tenants of a specifies moment forming Black Flag Sydney. Um, so we already had a clear social base um, that we could actually build um, anarchist ideas from while still maintaining uh, those intermediary groups as they're described by Farge. Charlie, that, that's super interesting, but I also get the impression that there's a critique here about what was came before. So one of the terms that you used here was to describe that you were previously in spaces that, that were swampy. So and that's quite interesting. I'd be interested to hear what, what you mean by that. But then also that you needed something that was action orientated. And Tommy, one of the terms you use in your writing is theoretical framework. Now, is there a link between these three ideas? Like, I don't want to force you into giving me the answer that I'm trying to drive for, but it, it seems to me that there is this recomposition going on. It has a shared political content, even has a shared aesthetic <laughs> content. In some ways, it seems to be responding to something that you thought were ins was insufficient before. I, I would just like to spend a moment digging into that because I think that probably leads to understanding what is at stake in Tommy's writing. You know, that this essay doesn't fall from the sky, right? Like, would I be wrong to be thinking that there's a, there was a critique of, of what was going on before, there's a process of recomposition happening, and then this writing sits in that process of recomposition saying, okay, this is what the next step is. Like, now I am forcing you into an answer, <laughs> but I'm happy for either of you to jump in. And if that's bullshit, tell me. But otherwise, I think it. I think it's kind of super interesting. Yeah. Tommy, you go first because I, I do have an answer that's specific to our experience, but it'd be probably good for you to foreground the, the theory you want to lay out in the article first. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, yeah, I definitely think that's true that it sits at a particular place because I guess you can probably tell that most of these organisations, the anarchist communist ones in Australia, are relatively young, which means that we're still sort of grappling with questions of, yeah, how we relate to the rest of the left and social movements. Uh, and this is, to most people involved, there's an entirely new framework that sort of breaks from, uh, I mean, maybe how anarchists in Australia more broadly had previously experienced movements and working with other groups. So. Yeah, the United Front was just a topic that had been coming up a bit in discussion recently. And um, I suppose, I guess I've been around a bit longer than some of the other comrades. So I took it upon myself to sort of look back at some historical moments that anarchists have really had to confront these questions and what sort of conclusions they drew. Uh, and then, yeah, I just I hope to maybe not so much provide the groups with an answer as to sort of hopefully ask the right questions and get people thinking about, you know, where, where they go from here in the next stages of development of their group. Um, yeah, I'd really like to hear Charlie's definition of the swamp as well. <laughs> I was um, using that in a um, self-deprecating self way, um, just having a little, little jab at the trots. Um, no, the, I guess the reason why I, why I say that is, you know, I, I think it comes out of the fact that what, what we were contending with in this space was, I think, an unclear definition of what anarchism is, um, especially, I think, between, you know, I think, confused liberals, um, to be honest, um, and kind of ultra-left abstentionists, um, and it really required it it really required a place to go here where in all the spaces that we were working with actually that we were pushing out the politics of um mass action um and fighting up against i think some currents of people where they would be drawn to anarchism as an idea um but i think have been drawn into anarchism because they've um, been turned off by Marxist groups um, and the party formation. Um, I think that often they will define themselves against that. Um, but what I think that ends up being is um, an aversion to mass organize, 
mass organizing as an idea. Um, and I think then the label of anarchist then arises um, for them to describe themselves. Um, I don't think that that's, that's sufficient. You know, we, we want to be organizing in these spaces where we are organizing um, broadly. We, you know, as anarchists, we don't want to have a closed ranks party. Um, but at the same time, we wanted a really clear definition um, that pushed up against individualist tendencies, liberal tendencies, um, and abstentionist tendencies that moved away from the idea of anarchism as actually being a mass action um, ideology, a strain of thought or tendency. Yeah. Um, maybe if I could just return to that question of what you meant, what I mean by three, a theoretical framework. So I think that this sort of exists at, at levels, perhaps. So the first one would sort of be, obviously, like with any kind of theoretical framework, whether it's, you know, scientific down to, you know, theories of political action, uh, it, it's a framework that, you know, understands experiences and knowledge of the world and, you know, tries to order that so then we can act upon it. So obviously in the more meta or grand narrative sense of what we mean by theoretical framework, I think like, just like Marxists, we understand, yeah, we basically use Marxist economics. We understand uh, historical materialism, I think is something that's pretty much common to all the new anarchist communist groups in Australia. Um, and then within that, we have sort of the more ideological framework. So based on the experiences of the working class throughout history, there's an identification of things that we want, which might be communism and freedom, and we call that anarchism. And then the things that we don't want, the things that we think are bad, like capitalism and the state. And then from, you know, sort of our understandings of what we want, what we you know like, what we don't, we then have to proceed towards, you know, how we employ that knowledge uh, to try and achieve our goal. And so that's when, you know, within anarchism, then we have the framework of platformism or a specifismo, which becomes a set of strategies and organizational practices that are built out of the class struggle experiences that anarchists have already been through. Um, and then within that, obviously, again, we have particular strategies, particular tactics. And I think these at this level in particular, it's much more gauged on the concrete situation that we exist in. We're not here to just, you know, recreate the CNT or something. Uh, it's more that we want to come together and collectively analyze sort of the situation that we face. Um, the, yeah, the real historical situation, politically, economically, the composition of the class, all these kinds of things and work out what kind of intervention we can make that will push the class, hopefully, towards the goal of socialism or communism. This is all super interesting. I think like it, the, 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 we were already touching on things that are very, very difficult and very, very multi-sided. I, I think, you know, as, as someone who I think we could, I would call myself a historical materialist if I needed a term. For me, I always attempt to understand how we theorize where theory comes from, right? How do we explain like the existence of, of ideas? And, you know, the, the, I, I won't probably foreground my critique so much in this podcast, but one of the things I, I when I, when I read the article, um, I always am interested in how do we explain where this theoretical framework comes from? Like, I think there is a particular tradition across the left in Australia with an idea that there are ideas that somehow are trans-historical products that exist out there and need to be applied and they must be defended and nurtured and watered. And to my mind, that always seems like those ideas themselves suffer from the fetishism and, and ideological nature of thinking in class society. And revolutionary theory is actually something different. It's something that's situationally produced between a moment of struggle and uh, the, its interaction with ideas. I kind of have a, a, an inverted Lenin, I guess, when, when to think about that. I think when Lenin says, you know, talks about the importance of revolutionary theory, he describes it as, you know, you've got class struggle on one side and intellectuals on the other and they encounter each other and they produce something new. I think what's wrong with that is it puts all the thinking in the hands of these groups called intellectuals and all the living in the hand of these groups called the workers and already builds in a problem. But if you strip it from that and say revolutionary theory is produced by the dialectical interaction of, um, you know, attempts to understand the world and struggle in a particular difficult moment, I think that is different from how the left has often approached this, which is there is a theoretical framework that exists a priori to our intervention. 
Does that distinction make sense? So I'm interested when, because it's crucial to this article. Like, and I, maybe we, if that history is really interesting, and I think I'll probably get a, from the anarchists that listen to this show, I think there might be a bigger debate about the, about the history of anarchism in Australia, right, and the issues and the debates that have come up. But before we get into kind of unpacking the article and why the, the notion of theoretical framework is so important, Tommy, could you just quickly tell us what you think is at stake in this piece of writing? Like, why did you write it? What were you hoping to achieve? You prefaced it before by saying, hey, I wanted people to you know, ask these questions. I think you're underselling yourself. I think the argument in here that w- what you think is at stake here is stronger than that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, how to put this. Okay, so I think what's at stake, I mean, the first note that I've got written here just to myself is without a compass, without a compass you get lost at the sw- in the swamp, right? So I think that having frameworks uh, as organizations, even as individuals, allows us to avoid the pitfalls of unnecessary sectarianism and of isolation. It allows us to know what we can expect from other tendencies, and it means we don't necessarily get pulled along by the tide. So if we think about the intervention of anarchists in broader social movements, if you don't sort of have a good, strong framework, you might just end up tailing the practices of social democrats and reformists um yeah and and just sort of watering down your own politics i think that yeah the the article not only tries to tease out how we uh work with other tendencies and groups but also the argument that i'm really trying to sell is that the framework of the specific anarchist organization I suppose the specifismo helps overcome the errors of the past sort of synthesis organization or anarcho-syndicalism. So yeah, in the background, I am kind of making an argument for a very particular kind of anarchism. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll get you if you want to present the core of, of the argument, but it's a hi- largely a historical kind of analysis through the notions of the United Front which you seem to be relatively supportive of in some formulations against the popular front that you're very critical of and then some looking at some contemporary Uruguayan attempts to rethink uh, that. Could you just give a quick rundown of the, the core of that argument there? What, what's good about the United Front? What's bad about the, pop, the popular front? What's positive about the contemporary um, reinventions of these yeah sure okay so i mean it draws also it draws i begin with by drawing on particularly italy so as far as i can actually tell the first people to employ the concept of the united front were actually the italian anarchists although it's commonly a term associated with trotskyism today uh so armando borghi during the bnio rosso proposed a united front where i think it was the psi the cgil the independent dock workers and trainway unions, the syndicalist union, the USI, and the specific anarchist communist organization, the UAI, all would join this united front Yeah, during the seizure of the factories uh, and that on this sort of common ground, they would fight against the capitalists. And yeah, hopefully they would, you know, make some kind of a socialist revolution. And from there, they would work out how to go further. Now, as that worked out, the PSI and the CGIL had this massive conference and I think they voted 500 and something thousand votes not to pursue social revolution and like 300,000 votes for it or something. So the anarchists, the syndicalists basically, and uh, I guess a large number of workers in the Northern cities ended up fighting alone. Uh, So, I mean, in, even in that very situation, uh, that's sort of an offensive united front, I suppose. It sort, of, it sort of illustrates some examples of some negative drawbacks to trying to make an alliance between various proletarian forces. So obviously the anarchists ended up isolated. Uh, I don't know if there's anything they could have done to make the situation turn out differently. But yeah, once you're isolated, maybe the majority of workers are then going to get crushed because you've undertaken this revolutionary action. The military comes in and smashes you. Uh, and then, yeah, you maybe look like fools. And also there's all the pitfalls of having, you know, ridden a high wave and then going backwards. So what happened to Italian anarchism after then? 
is kind of a bit of a sad story uh, about sectarian infighting and sort of abstentionism to the point where it became quite detrimental. Uh, although then they did also propose a united front in the defensive term, uh, which, you know, uh, that, that, that meant trying to build an alliance between all proletarian groups to fight against the fascists, uh, which is more of the united front that I guess I'm friendly to. And I, I suppose it's the one sort of more taken up by the Trotskyist tendency today as well. I think there's pretty solid arguments to be made for why in the defensive realm work, uh, working class organisations should should fight together. And I think there's also yeah, another, another thing to consider, I suppose, with the United Front is this question of from above or from below. And I think that every organisation entering into it is going to have a different conception of it really so the anarchist one would be that you only enter in a united front obviously if the base of your organization is on board with it whereas maybe you know a social democratic force might agree to it because they need the strength of numbers of more radical forces and yeah that's sort of quite top down the rank and file might not necessarily be that happy with it but it is the task of more radicals uh to try and win over the rank and file mm -hmm. um yeah, so I don't know. I guess there's a whole bunch of experiences in there to unpack. Uh, and then in terms of a contemporary understanding. So, yeah, I moved to Uruguay. Um, and so there's sort of this little known period of anarchist history where an anarchist organization, which was still actually quite small, maybe only about 100 people, maybe a little bit larger, managed to play a really significant uh, role in, a, in another country. So it's hard to, there's sort of like three levels to this. So what's, what's really important about Uruguay is that they didn't just have this one simple framework of just the United Front where organizations make this big compact across all fields of social work. They managed to break it down into the different levels at which they were operating. So the first one was what they called the, uh, I can't pronounce it in Spanish, but it's the combative tendency. So the FAO were significant in bringing together a new national trade union body, which was called the CNT. Now, it's not CNT because it was syndicalist like in Spain. It's just the name that they chose. The, most, uh, the largest organization in the CNT was actually the Communist Party. So then they brought, helped bring that together, united nearly 90% of Uruguayan workers. And then they set up within that this thing they called the, yeah, the combative tendency where they basically brought other radical Marxist groups that were joined around a program of sort of more directly democratic means, direct action, class struggle, as opposed to the sort of more reformist opinions of the Communist Party. And they focused on work in the factories. Uh, and then you sort of see this play out through the history, through the 50s, 60s, and then eventually into the start of the 70s. So while the Communist Party and other sections of the more reformist left, I suppose, are focused on uh, trying to build, uh, I haven't got it in front of me, but it's essentially like a left front, a popular front for elections, hoping that they can win and sort of bring the country back to democracy. The FAO identified that it's only at sort of the point of production that the working class has its real strength and it's the only way they're going to be able to fight this sort of turning Latin American tide towards, uh, yeah, imperialism, fascism, and, you know, the right-wing death squads in other countries. And as the coup approaches, you find that more and more of the rank and file start splitting from leadership of the, of the Communist Party and they start following the foul on the factory floor. Uh, and, yeah, this has all sorts of really interesting responses they get to this point where the military launches a, a coup uh there's the general strike declared according to a program that was largely written up by the FAO within the cnt almost all the country's factories are occupied and the struggle against the dictatorship begins essentially but within the week the communist party sends their workers back to work leaving the combative tendency dominated unions isolated essentially and they hold out for a couple more weeks but eventually you know sort of fall apart and then on another level there's sort of a background organization created by the FAO called the workers and students resistance this is much bigger it gets to sort of over 10,000 people 
and they see this as sort of the rear guard to complement the vanguard of the CN of the CNT. Uh, and so that in that space, yeah, they organize workers, uh, sorry, students to come out and support the workers when they're on strike, uh, like you know, small shopkeepers and things like that that sort of are tending more towards the, the progressive struggle. All these kind of elements are brought into that, and lots of other Marxists are involved in it, but the FAO is sort of the leading light of it and you can sort of if you look over sort of the history of that period and the organization it seems like there's an awful lot of people in there that identified with the FAO and it's an idea its ideas but just didn't join the specific organization uh, and then there's also there's like a third wing of it which was they had an armed struggle organization that basically contrary to all the other armed struggle in South America at the time they only ever really uh, took action when it was like defending a strike or a protest that was being harassed by fascists or something. So it was much more tied to sort of the mass movement. I think there's a little bit of a, a sort of an influence from the CNT's uh, defense committees in there, but it's, it's quite a different context. Yeah, so I think really what we can see is a bit more sophistication in how they, they organize their alliances at different levels. And then that is fed into the specifismo as it's modernly understood in the anarchist movement. And so, yeah, there's this grouping of tendency, which is probably the idea I flesh out the least in the article. Yeah, and it's the contemporary one that is mostly deployed in Brazil, I think, by the Federation in Rio de Janeiro. And so that's sort of like borrowing on this idea of the workers' students' resistance that uh, in the right context maybe it's not appropriate to directly intervene in a movement as the specific organization rather that you find people with very similar goals and you just operate out of sort of this secondary level of organization because i suppose one of the fundamental differences maybe between this specific anarchist idea and sort of the trotskyist one of the mass part you know the trots have the mass party Whereas to the anarchists, we have sort of this more open-ended concept that what comes next could be quite different from what's in the past. So uh, it, it's more like broadly the mass move, a mass movement or mass organizations are going to be the ones that uh, create or take popular power or working class power, however you, whatever term you want to use, rather than sort of the mass party of the past. So I think, yeah, it's a bit more open-ended there. The, the model kind of is presented here by, by Tommy. When I hear it and when I read it, there's really a vision of the kind of revolutionary organize, organization as strategist, I guess. You know, we're talking about an organization that's cohered, comes together, makes a strategy that is somewhat, I, I guess, like at a step away from or a remove from the mass of workers in struggle. And then they intervene in that point of strategy. So it's in some ways like the very model of, I guess, uh, a Leninist approach that anarchism historic has historically criticised, right? The idea, it's a vanguard organisation really that's adding to the struggle something that is external to the struggle itself. And is that, so there's that, right? And or I guess also what's here is, like I really read this article as an article arguing for that anarchists can become hegemonic in movements, that no longer do, is what is necessary is there like a kind of anarchist purism that you must be in spaces where there is only anarchism, but there is a tactical way that anarchists can relate to non-anarchist forces where they are the, the hegemonic force, you know, that this allows you, as long as you've, you ignore the pitfalls of the popular front and as long as you have a coherent um, internal politics, the theoretical framework. Is that, am I misreading something here or what do you think of that? Well, I'm not necessarily saying they're critiques, right? I just, like, I think I'm just trying to get to what, what's at stake. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's correct. Like, I think it's basically, I think the theory at the end of the day is, is the theory of, the militant minority without the vanguard party, essentially. Uh, that's what I that's what I think especifismo and platformism is. Do you want to comment on that, Tommy? 
Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I mean, I can see how you could say it's sort of Leninism. And like, I don't know, to me as an anarchist, I actually don't think Leninism is a dirty word. But I would say that, yeah, I, I actually think that it goes further back. And like, it's Bakuninism, really. I mean, yeah, if you look at Bakunin's ideas for intervention in the alliance, and uh, well, it was a terrible choice of terms. And I do not believe he meant dictatorship, but this uh, dictatorship of ideas. Mm. Uh, and But I don't think that necessarily that that means... Uh, that anarchism becomes sort of hegemonic in social movements. I think there's, I don't think that platformist groups sort of delude themselves with the idea that they're going to be the mass rather that they just want to intervene uh, to sort of hopefully help push the struggle further. And then, as I said before, it's sort of the mass organizations that are going to take up and actually make the revolution, which a good interpretation of Leninism, I think is very similar. And I think that really it's not the question that, anarchist ideas become hegemonic but that socialist ideas become hegemonic and then within that we struggle for anarchism or more libertarian methods of doing that of doing struggle if that makes sense no that's that that's that's basically what i meant with some more elaboration <laughs> yeah you know the, the, the yeah yeah, the hegemonic part is, you know, is 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 the spreading and the pushing of the ideas themselves um to that without without an organizational form um that will hold hold some sort of undemocratic power over them <laughs> but there, but there's already a, a suggestion that there's a strategic thinking that happens separate and exists within the anarchist organization right yeah that yeah that's correct <laughs> again i'm not saying this necessarily as a critique i'm just trying to pull out what's here that the the the, the, the there's a there's a there's a separation of the thinking of struggle from what we would say is the mass bodies of the class say they exist, and there there is a there is another term in that that in the essay Tommy of like proletarian organisation or something like that which again is something if we have time I'd like like to dig into but I'm going to have to go to go back to work relatively soon, so I might kind of put my critique out if that's all right and I'd be interested in hearing what both of you think about it so just to foreground my critique so. I think communism exists as an imminent like possibility in the class antagonism that exists within capitalist society. Um, it comes from a number of different sources. It comes from the struggle, people's moves to emancipate themselves, the productive and technological capacities that already exist within capitalism, the creation of a whole series of needs and socialities that can't be solved by capitalism. But in different historical instantiations of capitalism this takes a different class composition the antagonism is still there but what the capital labor relationship looks like is very different in 2021 from 1917 and this means that the forms of struggle and the organizations that express struggle are going to have to be specific to each moment of composition so that makes me ask something about this method where the method here is an attempt to do a long historical reading of an element of organisation, right? Even the notion, I think, of theoretical framework, again, is a long historical reading. You're looking back across multiple different class composition, multiple different instantiations of capitalism that I would believe have different class compositions in there and saying, I want to learn a lesson from this. I guess I really wonder if that is possible, but, but if actually in different, like whilst reading history is important and having these debates helps us think about struggle at some level, if really it is only through um, this specific composition of the moment and when that bodies are in struggle that we can have theoretical innovation. So, you know, the, classically the Soviet model is a, it arises after 1905, right? You know, it's, it is the, the revolutionary struggle that produces the Soviet, is the Paris Commune that compels Marx to change his, his ideas on the state. Possibly even as the United Front develops as a concept after the Italian Red Years, I might be getting my, my dates wrong here. Is there something about, is it, so my, my main critique is I just don't know the method behind this. If you can do this long reading, as opposed to going, what are the organisational forms that might emerge in specific compositions? 
that that that's uh, that would be the you know like you can blow that out of the water or knock it away, but that that would be the the one strong criticism I really have of this piece. Yeah, look, I think I think it's certainly a difficult thing, and I, like I understand sort of your point about of concern about uh, I guess yeah recomposition and and dealing with the moment that you find yourself in. I definitely think that that's something that has to be undertaken, but I also think like we still live in capitalism. I think that there are lessons that are relevant to our, our organization and our struggle today that, yeah, yeah, we might still risk repeating the same errors if we don't look back at that history and at least attempt to come to terms with them and attempt to establish some kind of framework out of it. And I don't think it's sort of a dirty thing that we, we look back at history and still identify with a particular tendency. I mean, to me, one of the things I think that's actually really useful about anarchist communism as opposed to yeah like say trotskyism or maoism or leninism more more marxism leninism is that it's a bit more open to a reading of the moment it's a bit more open to drawing from sort of proletarian tendencies in the past which is why i think you know we'll find uh, groups in other countries that call themselves libertarian communist or libertarian socialist or whatever else then we have like almost identical politics so for example when i wrote well when we wrote the uh the platform of our group john anarchist communists i had a couple of autonomous marxist friends in melbourne that i showed it to and they were like if this had a different name i'd still join it and well we'll leave aside what came after that the debate about it but i guess that one thing that also stands out to me i think i have to respond to is that while you're right that there's sort of any sort of material condition that struggle sort of develops from there has to be an intervention into it by some kind of force that's conscious of how we can move beyond that and there's always going to be political organizations amongst the class so i don't think there's sort of any way around that contradiction i don't think that there is sort of any pure politic that uh is like rooted purely in the entire class as opposed to the the specific groups that are a bit more class conscious within it Uh, and then those groups have to work out how to come together how to push the conditions how to exacerbate the contradictions how to create a change in circumstance because when there's a change in circumstance then perhaps more people will realize the potential of going beyond that moment towards something approaching socialism hopefully does that make sense it makes a lot of sense charlie did you you have something you wanted to add to that yeah um Marx is probably going to be pretty simplistic um i guess i guess my view of capitalism specifically is that it is a uniquely global um in globalizing and, and and totalizing force in terms of political systems throughout history. So I think to draw from the communist struggle historically, since the emergence of capitalism um, across the world will always have some sort of universal application um, for wherever it's practiced. Um, But, you know, there's always the element of theoretic theoretical practice which says that a certain idea will then be shaped and informed by its its practice um yeah yeah that's what i have to think about it and also just from you know i guess from the perspective of why um especifismo um specifist ideas are popular in australia like from a very simple point of view, I think it's based on a reaction of the hegemonic anarchist um, practices that have happened in the last 20 years since the decline of the labour movement um, and essentially recognising their failure. Um, so so why not pick up <laughs> a, a mass union-based um, anarchist politics again? I mean, you know, I'll, I'll try anything. Um, to win communism so so why not <laughs> that's been really really interesting i feel like um 
there's a number of different threads here which we have much longer conversations about the history um of of australian anarchism you know i'm not an anarchist i've i've often um been i don't think if, I don't know if parallel or perpendicular is the right word that i want to look for but i was you know a lot of my dear friends and dear comrades um of my generation were around um the sydney based collective mutiny and i would um probably want to speak more in i think you know i guess the richness of that tradition and um some of the innovation and tactical and theoretical and strategic innovation that mutiny produced but that'd be a, another conversation there's obviously a bigger one here about class composite class composition and theory and theoretical frameworks and they're all great and i would really encourage listeners that, um, at home to participate in further debates and if tommy and charlie are free maybe we could get you back on this to to nut through um specific kind of questions i'm very interested of course though because it you know i think for me who's now i'm older i'm kind of quite a number of steps removed from this something is going on in terms of australian anarchism and it's really interesting to get that insight tommy or charlie was there anything else that we've missed that you think it's really important we grab in the discussion now before i have to uh go back to work in nine minutes no, I think, I mean, yeah, I think you've asked sort of the right questions to tease out at least everything that I've written in this article. Um, I guess just one quick thought about sort of the the input of previous generation of anarchists and sort of why we're here that I think is worth thinking about is that maybe I think besides Jura, there's nothing sort of continuous and established. So you, there's definitely a phenomenon in Australia, in Australian anarchism, of sort of generations sort of repeating the cycle of starting afresh rather than sort of building off the back of experiences of people in the past. And I think that that's one thing that the specific anarchist organization hopefully is gonna be able to, to overcome, to act as sort of a repository for the past movements. That's interesting. That's interesting on two, on two levels because I suddenly thought, yeah, because Barricade has not existed in Melbourne for a really long time. I'm showing my age now. You know, and and even Black Rose doesn't exist in in Sydney anymore as a bookshop shop does it. So that's also the argument you make is um, the argument that when I was a teenage member of the ISO that I was given for the party that you needed some kind of organisational form that acted as the historic memory of the class. So you know, I'm not saying it's an illegitimate idea, but it, it was you know it's a it's an idea I encountered when I was a teenager in the IS in the mid nineties. It's, it's pretty much the same idea but I mean also there's just no other space that it is existing in Australia like it's not to foreclose that there could be some other space or movement or whatever that could act in that role but mm. that's just the condition we face in Australia because Mac is also gone basically um, and I think I don't know if you realize but uh, Black Flag Sydney's new paper is called Mutiny and when they brought it out I don't think they even realized they were using the name that of a previous anarchist publication in Australia. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. But I did uh, meet up with some friends recently and we did uh, discuss that. So, um, and about like the relationship. That's, it's re particularly interesting that, that if it didn't have a have a connection or a connection to the Australian folk punk band as well from, <laughs> from, Melbourne, from Melbourne either. Yeah, I actually um, pointed that out to some comrades recently because I've got their CDs. <laughs> I do. I've, I've actually got a very old mutiny tattooed, a tattoo on my arm that uh, wasn't a for the band, but I used to get teased about at, at mutiny gigs quite a lot. Uh, Charlie, are you, are you still there? Is there anything that you'd like to add? I believe that we were aware. We're just incredibly... Um, we're just incredibly uncreative. So <laughs> that's why with our names, it's a, there's a very small collection of things that um, anarcho-communists call themselves, apparently. <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Charlie and Tommy. I really appreciate it. Um, I would really like to encourage, you know, listeners at home to, A, read the article, <laughs> I think. You know, um, I'll also put on our Facebook um on all the social media that if people are actually interested in these ideas you're presenting convinced by them that where they can contact you uh, are you two on social media that you'd like to direct people towards yeah sure uh i'm on twitter as uh, call me tommy and uh we have a geelong anarchist communist facebook page i think uh depending on which sort of region you're in there's obviously the anarchist communist mingen page there's one for tma in new zealand yeah black flag sydney has one and then there's also red and black notes, which sort of I think you'll find writings from 
very yeah members of each group on there as well great well well thank you very much sir. i really appreciate your time today cool. all right everyone you. you've been listening to living the dream um it's been a long hiatus since our last episode but we've got more on the way como ser humano el hombre lo que quiere es su pan las habladurías le bastan ya porque estas nada le dan pues un dos tres pues un dos tres compañero en tu lugar porque eres del pueblo, afíliate ya en el Frente Popular. And just because he's human, he doesn't like a pistol to his head. He wants no servants under him and no boss over his head. So left to street. So left to street to the work that we must do. March on in the work as united front, for you are a worker too. We, we are not with us, we are going to the Grande Union. De tous les vrais travailleurs Marchons au pas, marchons au pas Camarades vers notre front Range-toi dans le front de tous les ouvriers Avec tous tes vrais étrangers Un peu prolet, un prolet Drum wird in kein anderer befreien Es kann die Befreiung der Arbeiter nur das Werk der Arbeiter sein. Drum links, zwei, drei, drum links, zwei, drei, wo dein Platzgenosse ist. Drei dich ein in die Arbeitereinheit, Front, weil du auch ein Arbeiter bist. Drum links, zwei, drei, drum links. Zwei, drei, wo dein Platzgenosse ist. Rei dich ein in die Arbeitereinheit, Front, weil du auch ein Arbeiter bist.